Hi, I'm Paul Delorier, and you're listening to Talking Blues. I'm here with Paul Delorier of the Paul Delorier Band, which I presume is your band. <laughs> that, that that would be very uh, um, astute of you. Yes, exactly. And I've known Paul, or I first met Paul like 10 years ago, and we find ourselves in his hotel room for some reason. My presidential suite. <laughs> yes, with chocolates. Yes, Belgian chocolate. Uh, Swiss chocolate, no, no less. So, Paul, tell me about a little bit about yourself. Tell me where you come from. Uh, well, I was born and raised in Cornwall, Ontario, uh, some many years, some exactly uh, 47 years ago today. Today's oh, yes, birthday. that's right. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I grew up, uh, you know, um, son of a French father and an English-speaking mother, and we grew up speaking both languages at home and, and of course, in the street and at school, and, and um, it developed a real love for music from an early age. You know? How did that happen? Um, I, I can't even remember the first time, you know, that, that music came into my life, but my parents, you know, had record collections and stuff, and, and older brothers and sisters that listened to music. And um, I, th I think uh, we, we, we all took, you know, classical music. Uh, I, I played classical violin as a kid, you know, in grade really? two, yeah, from the age of six to, to 14, you know. And uh, we had a piano at home, and um, I always sort of had a, an affinity for it and, and an easy ability to, to sort of, you know, uh, understand how it worked. And, and so, you know, I'd have my, my oldest sisters, their friends would come over and play, you know, little ditties on the piano and stuff like that. And I was about four years old and they would leave and I would play that what they were playing. You know, I kind of pick it up and watch them do it and stuff. Wow. So I always had a great interest in it and, and a passion for music the, the whole time. I played trumpet in school band and, and, uh, played bass in some of my first bands. Uh, so when you, kids. when you started taking classical lessons, did you get an appreciation for that music, or was it just because you had to do it? Oh, uh, well, I think at first, you know, your, your parents send you when you're six years old, and I don't think, uh, you know, it's, it's a decision that uh, we, we made and said, look, hey, I want to do this. Uh, so it was kind of, uh, it, was, it was offered to, to each of the kids, you know, mm -hmm. and, and some of us got into it, and I, I suppose I did the most. And I certainly did develop a, an appreciation for, for the music, of course, because I wouldn't have continued doing it if I didn't. And I was able to appreciate the beauty that's within that that type of music as well. And as my tastes and you know matured, and I discovered all kinds of different things, it, it kind of really broadened my palette. And I think it was a great gift that my parents uh, gave to all of us to be able to experience that, you know, because I think it gave me a wider sort of mm -hmm. um, uh, view on, on on music as a whole. So, was there a moment where you discovered whatever? If I, I presume it was rock music that you were drawn to. Um, was there a moment that all of a sudden it just touched you and you thought, well, I like this? You know, rock and even country and even blues-based stuff uh, was all over the radio in the 70s, you mm -hmm. know, growing up. So um, it certainly was always there. And, and I always had an, an attraction, like a profound attraction to anything, even if it was folk music, pop um it's even the top 40 stuff and there was a lot of great rock and roll bands in the 70s you know mm -hmm. <laughs> we can't the, and the guitar was just a focal point for all of that stuff and and i remember my brother came home uh with a uh, a couple of beatles albums that he borrowed from our neighbor on vinyl 
and he slapped that stuff on. And that I, I remember the distinct moment where I heard that stuff the first time, and I went, "Oh my God, that's what I want to do." And which album was it? Do you I, he had he came over with the blue album, which was the greatest hits from '67 to '70. Right. Okay. He had the white album, and he also had uh, a Beatles '65. So with that, just running those albums, I mean, I'm talking about it, I'm getting goosebumps already, you know. And uh, what do you think it was about that that just connected with you? I, you, you probably could ask several million people the same question. <laughs> they might even come up with the same answer. There was just, there was a magic, there was an urgency, there's, there was a, a rock and roll sort of rebellious intensity to it. And, you know, musically, I mean, now, 40 years in hindsight, you look at the Beatles and you, you, we realize, okay, well, it's Sir Paul McCartney now, isn't it? You know, uh, the contribution to songwriting and popular music is enormous, you know. And I'm just then, I mean, they, they broke up in 1970. That's the year I was born. Um, still, they were huge. But now you, you come to realize the impact that it's had on the world, the world mm-hmm. culture in general, you know. So I think there was, there was some kind of mojo and magic in what they were doing. And uh, I touched a lot of people. And we had a, uh, somebody had given uh, the family a guitar that had probably two strings on it had been lying around forever and I said well I want to learn that you know take me to the music store put some strings on it and then I you know had my brother-in-law show me a couple of chords and then boom I went off from there you know so by this time you had played other instruments you were somewhat musical already yeah I had some notions about you know of course with violin and I played some piano and uh even a bit of trumpet probably by then so I was about 10 years old when I you know gravitated to the guitar but it's the sound of everything you know, listening to those records, listening to, to Zeppelin, listening to all these great rock and roll bands in the 70s, and started delving into hearing blues and Muddy Waters and things like that. And that went, wow, like this is, this is Okay, for so me. how did that part happen? To um, well, it was probably like a lot of people, which is rock and roll. You're listening to, um, you're listening to the Beatles, of course, but you're listening to the Stones. You're listening to, you start to hear about things like, you're into all things guitar. So you're hearing about guys like Hendrix. Mm-hmm. You're hearing about guys like Clapton with the Blues Breakers. And um, you're listening to that stuff and eating it up. And then Stevie Ray Vaughan comes along about in 82 and releases his first album, or 83. And I remember a review, I still have the magazine, the guitar player, that said, this guy sounds like Hendrix on a good night. You know, And I went, well, I think I'm going to go out and buy this record. It was Texas Flood. You know, and that just blew blew the doors off and he single-handedly saved the blues and brought him brought him back revived them in the 80s for sure because it was you know buddy guy hadn't released an album in a million years you know and uh muddy had just passed away in 82 and so listening to these guys and then listening to these cover songs that they're doing and like you know uh eric clapton with blues breakers and you see this rambling on my mind done by this robert johnson fellow and you're hearing robert johnson here and robert johnson there muddy waters and these things going back and listening to what these guys were covering, right? What the Stones were covering and a lot of these British groups too. I mean, I've got a great love for the, for the great, you know, British guys and the, you know, the, the Holy Trinity of Jimmy Page, Clapton, Jeff Beck. And, you know, of course, Peter Green, one of my personal favorites and a lot of those guys, Paul Kossoff. And um, so going back, what those guys were really tripping on were, you know, what are those influences? So going back and listening to Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Buddy Holly and Little Richard, Chuck Berry, you know? I mean, John Lennon said, you open up the dictionary, look up rock and roll, and there's a picture, you know, there's a picture of Chuck Berry there, right? You know, the consummate songwriter and lyricist and everything, you know? So it just kind of blows the doors open when you start realizing what your favorite bands, what they were freaking out on. So now you're, are you starting a band in your basement? Uh, I've, yeah, I was starting the band with the boy, uh, with some friends, uh, 
playing I was I was already playing guitar and of course nobody wanted to play bass so I ended up being the bass player in the band you know and uh, just you know playing at first with piano little drums and stuff and then starting a real proper band when I was about 12 or 13 um, started practicing my buddy's basement exactly and then you know, we're building up repertoire and top 40 kind of covers and some rock and roll classic rock and to eventually starting to play church basements where they would have youth dances on on a Friday night you know and so that was like the first gigs and then eventually moving on to doing my first you know paid professional gigs by the age of about 15. Are you in Cornwall? I'm still in Cornwall yeah so we literally cut our teeth from the age of 15, 16, 17. I was playing four nights a week doing four sets a night you know and then back you know up back at school on, on a friday morning you know with with bags under my eyes and math class nodding off you know because <laughs> we're so tired but it was the greatest education i mean for me it was the biggest thrill ever i mean a i was underage to be in bars you know hanging out and playing but that's how we how we learn and we really did it and we you know we had some older mentors in this in town and stuff that would come and support us and give us tips okay guys when doing this doing that whatever and that was the real learning curve so we'd start a playing like classic rock tunes and all this sort of stuff and then gradually trying to slip in some blues tunes and you know eventually I made my way out of the city and, and went off to Ottawa for a year and then you know continued on for music Montreal. or for music yeah when I left high school I uh, I studied music for a year at Ottawa U and then uh, my real um, uh, hope was to go to Montreal to McGill which Sorry, I when did. you went to music for at Ottawa U, what kind of music? Were you it doing? was just a general music program, okay. and um, I'd applied to uh, to McGill University in jazz because I'd asked my uh, my high school music teacher um, if you know he had any kind of advice because I wanted to to uh, to make a career of a you know young naive seventeen year old. This is my life, man. What do I do, right? But you knew this. I knew, yeah. It was there was there was you know I could have I could have gone many ways, but. Um, that, there was no question about it. That's what I wanted to do, which my parents thought was absolutely insane. And they were positively worried about me and concerned that I would... I wonder why. <laughs> you know, that, uh, that I would have a very difficult, arduous life. And, um, but they insisted if I was going to do anything in music, I had to study. So, you know, logically, I'm going to go study music. So I didn't know anything about jazz or barely... And um, I talked to my high school music teacher who'd been, who's, who'd actually studied at McGill University. So he put me in touch with uh, someone there, got me uh, some guitar lessons, jazz guitar lessons with a uh, guitar player in Montreal. And uh, so I would take the train up from Cornwall on, on Saturday afternoons and, and uh, take a lesson for, for a few months with him to sort of build up my chops towards that. And uh, uh, eventually I got accepted in the uh, jazz performance program at uh, McGill University. Wow. Yeah. What do you think that jazz experience gave you? Um, it's, it's, it was, the, there's two different aspects of it. I mean, if I can be really candid about it, um, I still have difficulty, um, sort of subscribing to the idea of going to university and studying with, a, you know, and in such a general aspect, studying music. It was great to learn theory. It was great to learn a lot of concepts. Uh, you know, but after two and a half years, I kind of realized, okay, I got what I need here because I'm not, you know, I'm not going to. I don't think I want to teach for a living for as a main occupation and I don't necessarily want to stay in the school system or anything like that and mm -hmm. be a you know professional educator or anything like that. So um, it's kind of mitigated. I mean you look at you look at fan, you know Bach and Mozart and those they didn't go to university to study music. They mentored with someone. Mm -hmm. You know they mentored with what who was their guru and learned 
at the hands of right. someone else, you know. And music is very much like that. It's a bit difficult to sort of spread that out across 20 people in a classroom and, and um, really find your own voice. And I think ultimately you've got to find it within yourself. Um, I, as for, for, for as wonderful as jazz is, and, and it just, for me, it, it wasn't uh, a natural thing because I was playing rock and roll and blues and things like that. And I did, I studied jazz as a means to get out there and, and get an education through music and, and uh, so, but not really intending to become a jazz. Well, musician. Uh, maybe at some time I, I thought I would, but I I don't really think I had it in me, you know. And uh, I I enjoyed turning the amps up to ten and on broil and and windmilling it for half an hour. <laughs> you know, I grew up on rock and roll, so part of me okay, wanted so to do that. So when you're out there, whether it be air guitar or your own guitar, and you're turning it up to ten, who are you imagining you are? Imagining I am, I, I don't know if I, <laughs> Bruce Greenaway. <laughs> um, imagine, I suppose, I just trying to put myself in the shoes and the heart of, of many of my mentors. You know, growing up young, like I mentioned Stevie Ray Vaughan, I mentioned mm-hmm. the Hendrix and Clapton and a lot of those guys, of course. So is the dream years. to play at the Montreal Forum in front of 16,000 people? Uh, it never was like that, no. It was just, I loved it so much, it could have been in some shitty stinkhole club, which I did a ton of, and still even sometimes do, you know? And and just be the best I could possibly be at what I was doing, you know? And, and I always had this dream that, you know, someday I'm going to be in a really good blues band, you know? So I'm going to really, work the, at trying to do that. It wasn't a rock band, it was a blues band. Yeah, 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 very much so. Because... Uh, Rock was great and everything. I mean, of course, yeah, you know, dreaming of stardom and all that kind of thing is all very nice. But um, you, I don't think that as a guitar player, as a really committed guitar player, like that we really loved it and ate it and slept it. And drank, I don't even remember. And, you know, all those the practice that I did. But my sisters would say, like, are you kidding? You used to go to the bathroom with it around your neck. You know, you never and never. And I thought, well, it's really I did that that much. She said, yeah, like it was never off of your body. You know, so I must have always... But it is, I mean, that's the great thing about anything you love, right? And you become good at, you spend all that time. But if you love it, then it's not really spending... Yeah, I don't, I think back and I don't think, I mean, I can think of the the years at university where I was practicing a lot and stuff like that. But as a young kid, I would literally run home from school because I'd be the first one home and I could plug it into an amp and wail away and make all this glorious noise, you know? At that point, when you're a young kid running home from school and you plug in your guitar... Was there a moment where you learned something that just changed your world? Was there a lick that you thought, Man, uh, if I could master For sure, it? yeah. There were like, there was some real kind of aha moments where I was listening to people like Hendrix and, and listening to these guys kind of negotiate their way through blues and, and, and things. And there was, I actually do remember the exact moment where I kind of figured it all, where the pentatonic scale worked and how it worked. And, and it just kind of all clicked in my head and went, Oh, that's what it is. That's what they're doing. And then it was like, wow. Okay, I got. I. I not that I got this, but I, I know. What, I know where I need to go now. You know, and it kind of just all because you're learning licks and things like that. And I've never been much of a structured practicer or anything like that. You know, guys. Some guys are very disciplined. Will play. I'm going to play an hour every day. And I, it was just. It's always been sort of a musical thing. You know, and even when I do master classes and things like that, guys ask me about scales and what scale are you going to play with this chord. Whatever. I say, well. It's great. It's nice and good, but think about playing from your heart. Think about playing melodies. Think about you know singing melodies in your head. So 
that kind of all clicked in at one point. I was listening to some Hendrix cassette that was some bootleg or something that my buddy had lent me, you know, when I was 13. And I kind of just figured one thing out where what he was doing, you know, that was like the greatest thing in the world for me, you know. And it's it's might seem absolutely ridiculous to anybody else. Like, how do you, you know, and even my buddies, which none of my close friends around in school were necessarily crazy about music like I was, you know, they just thought like, would you ever shut up, stop singing? <laughs> you know, you're always singing, you're always doing this, you're always doing that. And, but uh, I just had this drive and I just loved it so much. I mean, I still do. I'm still, you know, you guys came into the room here and I got music playing. My son comes home from school. He says, dad, Every day I come home, there's there's, you, there's music. Turn that playing. music down. Yeah, you know I'm doing work, I'm doing office work, or anything like that. And yeah, exactly. My kid tells me turn it out. But and I, you know, I realized I did that throughout high school. I would do my homework and I have music playing, so it was always there in the background, kind of informing my mind and and soothing my mind more than anything. You know. At what point did you decide this is it? This is what I'm going to do, and there's nothing else. Um, I guess there probably was a time when I was a teenager. When I was already gigging and doing all that stuff and, and just loving it so much. And, you know, when you're young, you, you're so bloody naive that you think like, well, I don't care how you have to do it. I'm just going to do it, right? No game plan, no nothing, you know? Okay, and then you're was just, there a point where you were playing in a dive and thinking, why am I doing this? <laughs> there have been many of those moments throughout my life. A lot of, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to hide it from you. There's, there's a lot of ups and downs, you know? A lot of moments where you're like, fuck, have I wasted my life, you know? It's really? Like, Can you tell me the going? lowest moment? Oh, there's been, <laughs> there's been a few. There's been a few, but just a lot of tragic stuff that happens and, and, and things, you know? Um, I lost a dear, dear friend who was my, my, my bandmate uh, who was, like, uh, very severely injured, brain injured uh, in a car crash while oh, we were wow. out on the road somewhere and he was getting a ride back home to where we were staying after a gig, you know? And uh, we were tight we were the songwriter we were like the keith richard mick jagger kind of writing team everything that we that we built together over years and the, the band was getting really hot and uh getting known across canada we were touring a lot and things like that and opening for people like colin james and and uh yeah one night just to the you know how life can come and just pull it right out of your grasp you know he uh he was a passenger in a car that went off the road and hit a logging truck and he took uh, took the, the flatbed in the head you know, and survived, but we'll never, ever be the same and never be able to work like, you know, as a musician or like that, like we did. Um, so those kind of surprises come up and hit you every once in a while in How your life. How that affect you? Uh, very, very, very deeply. To be honest, uh, I lost my best friend. I lost my, he was my roommate, you know. Uh, we were we were building this dream together over probably about five years at that point, you know. And we were still young. I was still in my 20s, so that was the... This is where we're going for, you know. We're going for bust, you know, right. together, and it's like partners, and we're going to make this happen. And and it was, you know, we were feeling the beginnings of that kind of thing, and it just kind of ripped everything away. And I mean, it's difficult for me to even talk about how I feel about it because he he had his whole life ripped away from him, right. you know. And so that's I. There's the guilt that comes with that. There's the the shame that comes in me being the guy who survived it and is still okay. And my, my best bud is, is, you know, his life is in tatters and uh, how it affects your entire family and things like that. And, and yeah, it took me a long, long time, even years for, to, to feel like I was back on track again. You know, it took a lot out. I mean, for a long time, I, 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 
I took care of him for because he was he was in really bad shape and his family his, his parents were older they were in there already seniors by then and and you know you got your 30 year old son who's you know so uh, demolished that he's in diapers because he's he's had such a severe brain injury and he's in wheelchairs you know he's, he's had a lot of physical injuries that went with along with the brain injury and stuff and all that rehab so I ended up caring for him half the time with his parents for about a year you know wow and I just I didn't know what to do. You know, our career was gone. Uh, and that was the only sort of reflex that I had was, well, I got to help my buddy. He needs help, you know? So I did that for, for a long time. So it really put the brakes on, on things for, for, did you play at all? Or? I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first night, uh, only a, a weeks after his accident, we had a jam session. This was the time I was living out in Vancouver at the Yale, uh, saloon where they had, uh, uh, the Yale pub where they had uh, blues jams every Sunday night they put together an all-star jam and I came you know I was one of the guests and I came out it was the first gig I'd done since he had his accent I was shaking like a leaf you know and my buddies out there they were uh, they just said you know it's gonna be cool man we're here to take care of you and everybody of course knew you know my buddy very well as well and uh, they're like you know the, the brotherhood is gonna it's gonna take care of you here and it's all gonna be good and it was the best thing I could ever do is get back on the horse and play you know Tell me about that. Tell me about what what it felt like to play that night. Uh, well, I was it was it was the prospect of you know we were like right and left hand to each other, you know, and not that I'd not done and gigs and played with other people and all you know all the time. It was just the the prospect of losing that, which you know when you find somebody in your life um, that you really get a, a strong musical connection with, you know. You think that's like, oh, this might be a one in a lifetime thing. Like, let's stick with this. And then losing that, you think, you know, you, you know, it will it ever come back again? You know, I've been very, very fortunate to say that it has, you know. Um, and that's all that stuff gives you hope, you know. How did it come back at that? So, this is how many years ago? This uh, would be 20 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, what was the next musical project you pursued? Um, after that, we, at the time of my buddy's accident, we were building a recording studio out on Vancouver Island. And uh, I continued kind of doing that. And, as, you know, I was sort of a lost soul there at, the, at that time. So I took care of my buddy. And in between that, I continued building the studio, which would, had been kind of like the dream that we were going to be able to record our next album there. We kind of had it half sort of done. And so I finished that project. And... Um, associated with some other good pals of mine from out there, uh, Pat Stewart and Doug Elliott from a band called The Odds. And uh, we started an original project, writing songs, you know, after after a certain time. And mm -hmm. I was kind of getting back on the horse and writing music and, and uh, performing and stuff like that. So that that really helped me out of it. Music saved everything for me, as it always does, you know. It's, yeah. it's, it heals your soul that way, right? And um, But it must be tough when... It's because it's the music that caused you this pain in, in some ways. Well, no, I think that's just life. Yeah. <laughs> music, you know. No, but I mean, the connection was with music that you had with yeah. your dad, right? Well, I think it would, the same would be for anybody who suffers any kind of mm -hmm. tragedy or loss around them. Um, no matter what you do, you know, you lose your business partner, uh, you know, you're running, right. a, you're running a store and, you know, you're, or a hotel or whatever it is, you know, and your right hand or business associate you know, has something really bad that that's anybody would, would go like, what am I going to do now? You know? So is, did you get the passion back from music at that point? Well, I, yeah, I, I hadn't lost it. I mean, I, I couldn't listen to the music that we'd made for a long time together. That stuff was too difficult for me to kind of, I didn't want to hear it for years, right. you know, cause that hurt too much. But, um, 
But yeah, music saved my soul. And that was, like I said, that first time I went out and played and did a jam session with some friends and, you know, uh, that kind of made everything all right, you know. And it's funny that we're here at Blue Summit and we're in the lobby and meeting a bunch of our friends and stuff. And that community, um, I mean, I, I kind of transpose that to where we are right now, 20 years later, and that broad community of musicians and love for music, that is an incredible thing. That really got me through it. That really did. You know, mm -hmm. it's all these people saying, hey, man, you know, come on out. We need you, and uh, we're going to make music together. And, and uh, there's that love that is shared amongst musicians is the greatest thing in the world. Uh, you know, there's a real, there's a brotherhood and, and a sisterhood uh, and a sense of community and family that you don't get with people that don't do necessarily do this for a living. Even you, you know, it's there's something that we all understand <laughs> that it's absolutely crazy to be doing what we're doing. But we're doing it, and there's other people who understand why. <laughs> They're doing it for the same reason. We're all the crazy people, and it's great when we get to hang out together. How did you wind up going back to Montreal? So you were out west? Yeah, I was out west, and following all that, because you know, I was sort of searching for what to do next, and how am I going to you know, rebuild a career uh, after a couple of years. And I got a call to, uh, to do it. I'd, I'd been to Montreal to do a gig over uh, the Christ, uh, Christmas holidays because um, I used to go back two or three times a year to play with the band. And, and one of the club owners said, look, you know, we'd like to have you come out and we'll put a band together. Uh, some musicians that you know well already. And uh, the drummer on the gig happened to be Sam Harrison, uh, who we knew each other from before, but it was the first time we played together. So it's, uh, it was officially uh, 20 years that we uh, did our first gig together. And uh, so he came out and we put, a, you know, I sent them some music and stuff like that. And uh, someone was there that night uh, who saw me play and was a kind of uh, fairly famous Quebec artist. And I got a call to say, look, would you come out and do a bunch of gigs this summer with me, you know? And I was, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, how many gigs? Okay. I get to go back. I get to see my family because um, I have a lot of family in Montreal. And... Um, so uh, I flew back to do those gigs and, uh, you know, I was I sort of billeted at my cousin's place, you know, <laughs> in her basement. And uh, I was like, man, it's good to be home, you know. And one thing led to another. I did that tour and then I got another offer to do another tour. And then I was off to Europe uh, and uh, for months, you know. And it's, it just, I kind of kind of fell into doing the sideman stuff for, for a few years Um because I was still searching for kind of a direction and I always, always maintained the dream of continuing to, to have my own band and do, and do that. So kind of in the meantime, I started doing that. And when I would come back to Montreal, uh, I would do gigs with Sam and, and those guys. And uh, of course, eventually on, a, on another uh, gig as a sideman, I met Greg, our bass player. And I came back to Montreal and I told Sam, I think I, think I found the third, our third guy. You know, and we got together and played the three of us for the first time in a club in Montreal and it went boom. We went, okay, this is, this is it. This is serious. It just went, you know. Really? Tell me what that's like. <clears throat> ah, it's, it's absolutely magical. You know, like I was describing what it was with uh, my piano player buddy from way back. Uh, the first time we played it was that kind of thing too, you know. And uh, even Don Tyler Watson and myself, when we did our first kind of acoustic duo gigs together, there was this chemistry there, you know. And uh, certainly, most definitely, the first time the three of us, myself and Greg uh, Morancy and Sam Harrison played together, 
that was like there was it was explosive. Is, do you know like the moment you're playing? Like how does that connection happen? Uh, you just suddenly realize, wow, this is really easy, <laughs> and it's it's a matter of it's personalities and chemistry and what you know. It, you can have a, a fantastic bass player, a fantastic drummer, and for some reason, the chemistry's not there. You know, uh, it's like you know with women or you know you can, right. there need to be that sort of that that sort of physical chemist, chemistry that happens between people and musicians. And it really, poof, it did. And it, you realize that after you go, holy shit, this is like, this is heavy. You and know? they're feeling the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The three of us, we went, okay, this is like, we need to do this more and a lot all the time, <laughs> you know. And we've been working towards doing that for, for a number of years. And uh, I'd say in the last, uh, last four or five years, we've made a real serious effort, like, because we were all busy musicians you know because we've got families as well to feed and all that stuff so we always kept busy and always played together as the Paul Delray band and, but uh, you know uh, a few years ago went like guys you know we're not getting any younger and let's let's really seriously put our energy into this because this is what we want to do we love we're always trying to find excuses to play together even if it wasn't you know our gigs it was you know supporting someone else or being the backup band for this or uh, that project and um you know, we we finally sat down and like, okay, let's let's make a game plan here. Make this our future. Make this our. And were they on side with? Like, did everyone understand that this this needed to happen? Well, absolutely. I think it came from everybody. It came from all three of us. We've been talking about it, you know, for for years. And like, essentially, we said, like, look, we're a bunch of idiots. Like, <laughs> like let's let's get serious here. <laughs> you know, put our brains together and make this work. You know, and it really, it uh, you know, as of that moment, it's really and it's truly a a band, you know. Right. In, so I in want to talk to you about that because it's not you with two side guys. There's no. a level of commitment from absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, I had been running under my name for for a long, long time and doing different stuff. But you know, often those guys were away, and I'd hire other uh, bass players and drummers and things like that. But ideally, the, that dream team was always there. Um, so we actually there was a moment where we sat down, we committed to each other, and said, "Look, you know, we're all going to put in this equal effort." And, and and share in this and we'd all did done they, enough did they mention the name thing at all well <laughs> there was discussion about that but the you know the guy said look you know you've been running on this name already you've been you, you got um developed a lot of you know some notoriety we working with don and things like that people know who you are especially in the in the uh in the circuits that that we were touring in and the cultural centers and soft seater and and, and those venues knew who i was so like why not use the steam that we have with that already? So that's why the band got added to that mm -hmm. moniker. And every chance I get, I, I bring that up and mention that it truly is a band, you know, in the true sense of the word. Which is kind of <clears throat> unique in the world of blues in, in Canada. Like I, not yeah, I, I think um, my philosophy behind it is, you know, I've always been a band guy um, and I have no problem sharing the spotlight. And, and I think it's... I, I'm so blessed to play with what I think is the greatest rhythm, rhythm section in the country, if not, you know, um, much far beyond that. Mm -hmm. I am absolutely blessed. These guys are monster players, and I have the great joy of surfing on, you know, among that and on top of that every night with those guys. And um, I've always, it's bands like Cream, mm -hmm. bands like Led Zeppelin. They're essentially power trios, you know, the Who and things like that, where you had 
the th- you know the, th- the guitar, bass, drums, and every member was just. You can't look at Zeppelin and go, "Well, this guy's the weak link in the band." You right. know, you know what I mean. Each guy, you really sense this strength and presence from these people. These really strong personalities, and to me, that's the greatest asset. I mean, why would I want to sort of, you know, put that in the background and make it all about me when these guys are like, "Hey, man, it's like the sum of the parts become greater than what it is." Mm-hmm. Because I could go out there and and hire different fantastic players but the level of commitment emotionally physically and and even financially is not is it's not the same so we're in you know intrinsically involved in all those aspects together and we give everything together so that becomes exponentially greater it's a difficult thing to keep a band right it's tough i mean we've been we've been playing together for 17 years i think it is now and it's tough. I mean, we're brothers, right? We fight like brothers too, <laughs> you know, and often. <laughs> but we get over it, you know, as you would with your family. And, and uh, we realize that because our love for each other and, and our commitment to, to making great music no matter what, or the best that we feel that we can make, you know. Um, and that's huge. That, and I think that shows. And then people see it. They come to see the show. They go, oh, I got it. But wow, you know, there's always... Someone in the crowd is going to be focusing on Sam on drums and going like, I've been watching you all night and you're fantastic. You know, same thing with Greg. Like, what a, you know. And that, that part of that gives me great joy. It gives me huge joy, you know, because those guys are worth it. They're worth having, uh, being celebrated. So when the, you sat you know, down and said, okay, this is the plan. We really need to work a lot more together. This is what we need to do. What was that thing that you needed to do? Let's get our shit together. <laughs> Which means? As much on uh, learning everything about the business that we can that we haven't already. You know, I had my feet wet in, in making records and, and uh, you know, how, how to finance that and how to make that happen, put them to physically get them pressed and all that kind of thing. And, and we all kind of brought our expertise to the, to the table and financial aspect is a huge thing. Oh, we're going to get associated together. Well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to split the proceeds? How are we going to pay for the expenses? How are we going to, let's make this a business, you know, so whether, you know, um, where we're sort of, you know, the, the, the invoice goes to so-and-so and this, and even that whole aspect is like counting our pennies and we managed to make our two last albums completely auto-financed, you know, um, basically pulling our money together for the first record and, and we broke even, for the recording of the album, the pressing and all, and the promo of the, of the first record within a couple of months, you know? And we were like, hey, we're in pretty good shape. So we started being really, really careful about everything we spent, you know? and But at the same time, taking calculated risks, investing in promotion, investing in marketing and the, the band and, and coming to things like the Blue Summit and and uh, and making those investments in order to reap the rewards and get get the kind of exposure that we were hoping to have, you know, and that kind of has been snowballing and snowballing. And so far, um, we've been very fortunate. It's been, it's been going really well. And it, it has been going really well. Yeah. I mean, you've had, like, if I'm not mistaken, you've had one hell of a couple of years. It's been, it's been really good. It's been really, really good. You know, we so had a... What would you attribute that to? Is it just, is it hard work? Is it... I would say a lot of hard work, a lot of, you know, 80 hours a week. It's, it's two full-time jobs. Because you got to create music and be a musician, but at the same time you got to run your business, and we've been putting a lot of time, and it's been a lot of fun. It's been a hell of a lot of fun, but we learned a lot. You know, we do all our own bookings. Uh, we we learned about every aspect of the business, so we've started 
taking charge and saying, look, if we can't blame anybody else, you no. know, if we don't succeed, it's because it's our own damn fault. Or if there's a problem, it's we got to fix it rather than blame somebody else for, you know, well, we don't have enough gigs or we don't have it. That's, you know, it's because that can be a vicious circle and, 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 yeah. a lot and, of and then I lives. talk to enough musicians who say, you know, if we, only we had management so that we can concentrate on music and they could take care of other things or we, you know, whatever. Well, there seems to be at different times, different levels, people have different expectations. To have it. management, you got to have something to manage. Right. You know, and in today's music business, which is not what it was even five years ago, um, you got to you got to prove your point. You got to pr- prove yourself first before anybody's going to take any interest or even take any risk in what you're doing. You know, so it, the idea and the onus for us was, okay, let's try and build this brand ourselves. We'll do it all from the, you know, grassroots from the ground up. We'll learn about, you know, web design and we'll learn about uh, booking. We'll learn about, uh, you know, uh, uh, social media promotions. We'll learn about marketing. We'll learn about this. We'll learn how to, you know, make pr- all those aspects of it, pressing our own records, our own label and everything. And, and as we're doing that, we gained a lot of confidence because we started to know, okay, this is how that works and this is how that works and this is pretty cool, you know? And we managed to kind of keep tight reins on it and make it work. And we, we really put a lot of hard work, but we're so lucky that we're actually, we, you know, if I look back to two or three years ago, we've, we can really see tangible results in what's, what's happened for us. So. so people outside of Quebec have this, maybe not they, but... There's this, there's this feeling that I have that some Quebec artists can do well in Quebec and pretty well make a good living just touring Quebec and, mm-hmm. and they have a great support system. Are you at that point? Like, is it, is it fair to say that you could make majority of your money touring Quebec all year round? And Well, I'd say at this point, we're probably, you know, if you look at it in terms of uh, income and things like that, it's obviously our, our kind of our... Um, our strength uh, base anyway is is within Quebec. Probably about 60% of what we generate is coming out of Quebec like at the moment. How many gigs would you be doing in Quebec? We're doing about something like 50 or 60. Okay. You know. But am I correct to assume that some uh, artists Yeah, and that? it's it's a strange thing. There's this great wall, you know, kind of psychological border between Quebec and Ontario, let's say, mm-hmm. or the rest of Canada, and which is positively ridiculous in my mind I, I grew up in Ontario you know and Quebec was a stone's throw away literally Cornwall is the closest uh, right. city to uh, in eastern Ontario it's, um, but there is that notion for sure because we're very fortunate in Quebec where there's a lot of support for the arts there's a lot of even gover- government uh, funded support for the arts in Quebec in, in that there's a lot of um, cultural centers, venues like that of that sort that are even small, but they're, they're funded and aided by the government to be able to keep these things running and put on decent shows. And you actually have a decent dressing room and, 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 um, there's a lot of support and they, they work it very hard. And there's a very strong sort of, um, I don't, I wouldn't say it's a closed circuit, but it's, 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 it takes care of itself and it's thriving. So that is, it's kind of a big part of our, our fan base, but it's also a big part of, you know, where we manage to, uh, to stay afloat right. however however there's this the rest of this beautiful country that uh, we're we're beginning to venture out to and love doing we really do and i you know um we've been we've done a few ontario tours we've been out to bc and alberta and things like that and and uh and we're we love it it's we're 
constantly pleased and and surprised I, I don't know if surprise is the right word but uh pleasantly uh how should i say it uh it's a very happy thing when we see people that come out and really enjoy the show and you'll, you'll find that in ontario you'll find that outside that there's people will drive two hours to come and see a show we heard about you guys where we heard that you guys were coming here we drove two hours to come and see the show and we loved it that is like wow Whereas in Quebec, you get it might be handed to you on a plate in the sense that you know every at the cultural center, there's going to be a show. You're going to get a three or four blues shows a year there. So show up. If you don't, well, too bad you missed the show. You know. Um, so there's a bit of a complacency in certain venues that way out there because it's it's they all it's not that it's taken for granted, but it's just there. Whereas, but if you have that support system and you're playing in front of hundreds of people. And then let's see, you're trying to... That depends. <laughs> okay, tens and twenties. No, <laughs> but, no, but I mean, obviously you play in various numbers of mm-hmm. crowds. But let's say you go to Calgary or uh, um, Lethbridge or somewhere where you're, you're less, less known and you're not attracting as many people, even though six people might have driven two hours to see mm-hmm. you. Is that a difficult thing for you to... Well, it's basically, uh, we call it development, you know. We're developing our markets outside of where we're already kind of strong, you know. Right. And it's part of any business, first of all. But it's it's great. It's it's getting back to basics. It's like the only, you know, in my mind, and I think Greg and Sam can speak, uh, I can speak for them as well, the only way to, to really do it and build that fan base is to get out there and get in front of people and bless all those venues smaller venues that hire live music that have you know that that passion and they're doing it they're driven strictly by their passion for music and they're not getting a ton of government support to keep the venue running or anything like that but they are supporting live music and doing everything they can for live music and they're building an audience for those that type of uh, uh, that type of scenario um, so you've got these venues in Calgary, you've got these venues in Edmonton, you've got all these blue societies that are getting together and pr- putting on a show and reaching out to artists saying, we would like to have you guys host a show with you. So you've got all these people that are either on a voluntary basis or putting out their own cash at risk and building these venues for people to come. There are all these blues lovers and music lovers out there that still thrive on coming out to see live music. And if it wasn't for those people, we wouldn't have a career. Because, you know, we're not selling records in stores. We're not, you, you stream your song 30,000 times and you get a couple of bucks, you know. Um, they're measured in, in decimal points of pennies right. per play, per stream. So the only r- real thing that sustained us as artists is is the people that come out and see these shows. So I, you know, bless all these venues that work hard to stay open and, and give good quality music to people. And... Um, all of them. They're all part of what we're able to do. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be able to do it, you know. Well, but you do a good job. So one of the things that happened last year was you went to the IBC. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what your expectation was. I don't know what your goal was. Tell me about that experience, what you went into, like, how did you approach performing at the IBC and what were your expectations? Well, to begin with, we were just thrilled to, to be chosen to, to represent the Montreal Blue Society and uh, consequently, the entire province of Quebec, because all the artists, which are all my dear friends, we were competing against was, you know, we, multiple Maple Blues Awards win, winners, mm-hmm. and talked about uh, Don Tyler Watson, Angel Forrest, and Jordan Officer, and the list goes on. Great, great artists, right? So we were 
surprised and thrilled to have just been chosen to make it to Memphis. So just to get there was a big, big deal. And, Sorry, and have you had any exposure to U.S. markets at this point? I had, uh, Don and I had gone to the IBC uh, four years earlier okay. prior to that. And we actually, so you know what the experience is about. I had, yeah, a notion of what, how it worked and how, how, how it functioned and everything. And uh, Greg and Sam, however, was the first time. And we'd, we'd, been, we'd played a few shows in the U.S., like in Omaha and things like that, and here and there, but nothing, no great uh, forays into the, into the U.S. market at all. So we went down there. I mean, uh, and it's it's a strange thing because you're competing. You know, how do you compete with music? You know, how do you, it's a very strange thing. But they 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 worded correctly in calling it a blues challenge. You know, because everybody's subject to the same conditions. You play in a club. There's 12 bands or 10 bands playing. You got five minutes to get on and off the stage. Plug into whatever crap is there. And even if the sound man's asleep at the board, you got to get out there and do your thing, right? And and everybody's subject to those same conditions, so um, it's it's interesting and it's it's stressful at the same time. You get a lot of pressure. You're trying to. So the first night we were there, you know, it was it was quite edgy. You know, we were we we're trying to think of well, how should we approach this? And, and eventually, we got to the point where we said, look, we're not. It's crazy for us because we have such a sort of identity in that. We here's these three, and one's former long haired. Guy, but three hairy guys from Quebec, you know, coming out of nowhere and and trying to do our thing, and we're not going to try and please the blues purists or whatever. That's not what we do, right? Mm -hmm. We are inadvertently going to sound like ourselves. So why not just be the best Paul Deloria band we can be? Do what we do. Come out, show our true colors. This is what how we play, and this this is what we do. And I think that was the. When we, we kind of came to that realization after the first night of quarterfinals, we kind of, that kind of pressure just went off, and we we're like, okay, guys, let's just be the best us we could be and see what happens. You know, that's all we can do, mm -hmm. you know, because I think it would be false if you're trying to, well, let's play more, you know, pure blues or, or different things that we don't necessarily do in our live show, but we're trying, you know, if you're trying to play for the judges or trying to gain points, and that's, you're not thinking about music. You know? did, did your experience four years ago with Dawn, which is a completely different show, an acoustic thing, mm -hmm. did that experience at the IBC inform you in a different way or affect the way you approach this gig or not? Uh, I think it just basically um, kind of enlightened me as to what what the competition was and what to expect as far as movement and venues and, and, and the conditions under which you're, you're yeah, expected yeah. to play and perform, you know. Um, I certainly it did. And I had a notion of the mechanics of it. So that was good. And also to like, well, you know, I, I'm not really sure I had uh, a lot of forethought about like how to approach it. And, you know, you don't want to placate the, so, you know, this person, or that person, it, it, it certainly, I knew what the mechanics of it were. I knew how that worked. Uh, but I'd never done it with my band in the in the in the context of an electric right. uh, trio, so it was still very fresh to me, because it had been some time that I'd been there with Don, and uh, it was the first time us as a trio. So it was interesting to see how we would approach that as as a unit and how we we, we would react and how would we um, survive <laughs> the experience, you know. And but you got to go down. I knew already. To go down there, you had to ha go down there with the idea that you're not going there to try and win something. You're going there to meet people and to get in front of people mm -hmm. and, and, and do your best thing and connect because it's, the, it's an incredible networking opportunity. You know, even if you don't move on past the quarterfinals, well, man, soak it all up because mm -hmm. everybody's there that week. 
you know, meet people, chat, and uh, you know, there's tons of people that have gone on to great success who didn't even, yeah. you know, uh, move that far forward. And and it doesn't mean it's it's not great what they're doing, you know. So, so you wind up going to the finals or the semifinals. You wind up going to the Orpheum Theater. What are you thinking? Uh holy, holy shit, <laughs> <laughs> holy fuck! We we actually made it this far. Um, that was something. It was quite surreal. I got to tell you, because here's three guys out of Montreal, Canada, and you know, we've never been hardly ever performing in the U.S. Uh, there's people from all over the world. There was 119 bands. And are you aware, from from your point of view and your your experience of this thing, are you aware of the other bands? Are you checking them out, or are you not? Absolutely, yeah. Well, we're, you know, w- uh, within the venue that you're playing, you, there's ten to twelve bands that right. are performing every night, and that changes from night to night as you move uh, as you move on. So, absolutely, we're checking out the bands and seeing, you know, how they're faring out and uh, and and enjoying a lot of them and making friends with a lot of these people. You're making connections with these, these guys are great. You know, these guys, this band came from Australia that was, you know, another band from Cincinnati. We, the first night we were there and we we're like, these guys are really good, man. Let's go chat to these guys. Make, you know, and you end up making connections with people and, you know, of course, inadvertently uh, your, your Facebook friends with them after and, and, and there's all this kind of help and camaraderie and connection community that happens. You know, if ever you're in Cincinnati, let us know. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll let, uh, you know, we'll let you guys know uh, where the gigs are and talk to so-and-so and this and that. And we've got to all trade because we're all in this together, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's really this, uh, I didn't really feel any kind of harsh competition sense between the groups or anything. I think So as you went further, it didn't change. Your perspective of the whole thing as you're getting into the finals didn't... Um, it got more exciting. It got, at the same time, in a strange way, more stressful, but more fun. It was, just, you know, we... we as we move forward, we learn to relax a bit about it too, because we're like, okay, I think this is working for us. So let's just kind of keep doing what we're doing and being who we are. And, and that's the best we, and as we kind of saw it progress, you know, from the quarterfinals, moving to the semifinals, and then finally moving to the finals, we were like, at the same time, as stressful as it is that you're moving forward, it's, it's a nice pat on the back mm-hmm. for all the people who said, well, you guys are too rock and you're too this and you're too that. And uh, now, you know, such an, you, you guys wouldn't be right for this or you would, all of that kind of melted away. And that was, I think, a really nice part of it for us. It was kind of a justification, like, guys, we're doing the right thing. We're doing, we're making music that people actually will like. There's an audience there for us. And could you feel that, that feedback from the audience? Like I, when you're playing at the, the finals, are you getting something back from the audience? There? Definitely, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of love and support for every mm-hmm. act that's there, obviously. And right. nobody gets there, you know. I, I, I think by the time you make the finals, it's, um, there's a lot of really good quality acts there, you know. So anybody who was there, was, I think, earned their place and worked hard to get there, you know. And um, you feel a lot of love. There's a lot of support. You know, there's obviously, you know, support for their bands that from their blue societies and things like that. But... You know, all in all, it's really good music that's going on all day when you see that. So, I mean, how can you not go, hey, this is fantastic, and clap and cheer for people, right? We were just thrilled to be there. And at some point, we realized, we looked around and went, we're the only non-American act in this whole thing. The rest are all Americans, uh, either the solo duo categories or the band categories. And with this odd little band of Canadians, you know, from the little trio from Montreal that nobody knows, you know. Um, so we were like, 
this wow <laughs> this is pretty amazing you know, you know was, okay so then it's the final day you've done your gig and then the boats are tallied and they make that announcement yeah and you're sitting backstage I yeah the, all the bands basically they ask you to gather side stage and wait for the announcements you know so uh, of course announced the third place with the norman jackson band out of mississippi where guys were great and uh you know, sitting around going, oh, well, you know, we got to start packing our stuff up, I guess, you know. And uh, they announced the second place on us. And we're like, what? Really? <laughs> you know, and it was, uh, it was pretty surreal. And it was extremely exciting, and we were terribly grateful about it. It was, you know, and for every, I mean, it brings me back to, for every blue society that's, that's putting on this competition, Road to Memphis and all that stuff like that, and people say, uh, the local musicians say, wow, it's all... It's this or it's that or it's a political thing or it's fixed or is it even worth it? Is it mm-hmm. even worth investing your time to go there? I mean, I, I for us it really it really was and it's it's um, it was a dream come true for sure. You know, it 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 uh, it did a lot of wonderful things for us. It truly did, and that's where, just that whole aspect of getting there and working towards and working with people. I mean, the Montreal Blues Society was so great. You know, they we, we did fundraising campaigns and stuff like that to to be able to finance the trip there because it's all it's all on our own expenses yeah, yeah. and that. So it, it takes a great deal of people, and it and there was you know a ton of love and support from everybody from all our fellow you know Montreal artists and from Quebec and and as the competition went on, we would see on social media we sort of announce okay well we're moving to the to the semifinals you know and we could feel that that wave of love that came from everybody that had been supporting us throughout it as well. So that part of it um, also felt really good to be able to give back in that sense, you know, because it, it's, you know, we, uh, we got there, but it was not without a tremendous amount of help. There was mm-hmm. an entire village helping us get to that. So it was that part of it, that part, you know, being, feeling good about, being able to give back and say, look, this is what you guys did for us. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we made it, we would not have made it without that. So thank you for, for, for supporting us and showing us that love and giving us the confidence. And every time we, we moved up and uh, kind words of encouragement and everything like that, that was like, it just bolstered us and allowed us to, to, to do what we did. And, and with, you know, I mean, I say this very humbly, you know, with, with the results that, that came with it, you know, mm-hmm. Because now just, that continues. I mean, you you now have the opportunity to play some festivals and some opportunities that you wouldn't have had before. It opened up a ton of doors. Now they know who we are. I mean, you know, since then we released our, our second album, the Relentless album, came out a few months after uh, um, after Memphis happened. We uh, uh, secured a U.S. distribution and throughout Europe as well for the album. Um, you know, we hired a U.S. publicist, did a fantastic job for us. So now we're not just some trio for you know coming out out of nowhere from quebec or whatever and saying like please please give us a chance we need a gig you know uh now there's a calling card well what mm-hmm. have you done well we we uh we were the you know montreal representatives and we, we made all the way to the second place at the, at the ibc so that's okay well okay you guys if you got there well it should be you know fair you should be fairly palatable right. to 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 people and but the goal is to to write on that and to make it bigger well, I think yeah. I mean, it's 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 never the goal to win something or whatever because you're trying to make the best music possible. What what you're trying to do is is impart to as many people as possible that 
what you're doing is okay and hopefully find an audience. And there's, there's no point in trying to hammer your stuff to an audience that's not interested in that, you know, and that gives you the opportunity to go and touch the, the key people that actually like what you do because not everybody likes what we, you know, the, like the blues rock or the power trio guitar. If you don't like guitar, don't come to the show. You don't like loud dr- drums or, you know what I mean? Okay, let's talk about that. How, yeah. how do you feel that? Is that, a, is that a conflict? Do you hear that a lot? There's a whole big thing and that's, it's getting back to what I was saying about like finally, you know, how we got sort of a, a confirmation that what we were doing was okay right. was the, that fact because you get a lot of there's blues purists out there and I did, I've done some interviews uh, having long discussions about that, you know, and with some interviewers that are, you know, uh, want to uh, change the, the notion that calling it, you know, like alternative or, uh, or kind of new blues or, you know, that kind of thing, right? Or independent blues artists, you know, um, because there are two schools of thought. There's a lot of people out there that are blues purists and and are by that mindset that it's not real blues if it's impregnated. But have you with, personally doubted it? Have you ever thought, eh, maybe it's ten, ten down to nine? Uh it's no. I just I just love that stuff. No, no. Why? Why? Why should I? And I mean, anybody who's ever, you know kick the music genre into the next, you know, into the next, into the future has always changed things up, has always pulled in influences from elsewhere, you know. When, uh, you know, when Willie Dixon, you know, wrote, you know, uh, Hoochie Coochie Man, things like that, those, that, you know, that was revolutionary. I'd never heard that before, you know. That was like, what the hell is this? You know, that's, you know, Ray Charles started singing gospel music and putting the secular lyrics and that was like this mm-hmm. is was sacrilegious right and anybody kind of pushed that envelope well now we look back at that we go yeah of course you know wow muddy man he was he was the king you know and anybody pushed that envelope it's, it's i've has felt some resistance right. i'm quite sure but you cannot negate the effect of rock and roll it had on keeping the blues alive mm-hmm. you know all these British acts that started freaking out over over all these uh, American blues artists that were largely uh, out of fashion in the late '50s, early '60s, you know, um, that reinjected everything and gave them a whole new audience. BB King and Buddy Guy and all those guys were playing to young kids now, uh, mostly white hippie kids, you know, in the late '60s and things like that, uh, and that became the audience, and then the blues exploded and became worldwide. And now you go down to the Blues Challenge, you got bands from the Philippines, you got bands from Portugal, you got bands from Croatia, you got bands from Australia that are all coming here playing blues. So what impact did rock and roll and other forms of music have on the blues? Well, I think it's... I think they, they all did... There's a lot of bands that did very, very well, and they do. And um, I think that's largely what, what, what kept it, this music happening and kept it flowing throughout the world, you know? How did that experience change your confidence or affect you, affect your confidence in your playing, in your band? Well, like I said before, it, it just kind of gave us the pat on the back and saying, guys, stick to your guns. You're doing the right thing. And there's an audience for that. There's people out there that, that are going to dig what you do. You just got to go out and find them and get in front of those people. And, you know, I still take serious issue with the, oh, the, the purism. It's great. I can do it somewhat but i've never been i've never gonna end up sounding like a you know 50s chess recording uh band from the you know from chicago that's not 
my makeup genetically, musically from what I grew up. It's, and so anything, and any artist will tell you that, they're just an amalgam of what their influences are. And by osmosis, you gather these things together and make what you know, you know. And that's as real as can be. That's as honest as can be. I'm not going to, you know, dress up like it was 1952. And, 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 I, which, and, and I'm, believe me, I'm not knocking that at all. It's right. just, if that's your, your dada in life, if that's what you love to do, then please do, because it's a great thing. And I admire a lot of those players, and I enjoy, and I listen to a lot of that old stuff. But my, in my genetic makeup, that's not who I am musically. So I'm just going to spew out what everything that I've heard in my life. I'm going to mash it together and try and make something somewhat original that that still pays homage to to what I grew up loving. And I think that's basically the whole, you know, our musical mission in life is paying homage to those that moved us so greatly in our childhood and younger years. What made the hair on your arm stand on end when you listen to music? Well, this is the greatest thing in the world, you know. Isn't this? You know, you turn it up, use headphones and and how it made you feel. And if I can give, you know, a drop of that back to music, with, you know, from what music gave to me, then then all is good with the world, in my world anyway. Well, it's, it's been quite impressive to watch, you know, things that have been happening to you. You're playing the Vegas big blues bender next year with, with an awesome lineup. I mean, that's... Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. We're, uh, you know, we're thrilled, obviously, and honored. And that's, again, that's the kind of thing which is a direct result of going mm. to things like, you know, the Blue Summit or IBC because you have the opportunity. If you're sitting at home on your couch, you know, dreaming of success and stuff like that and not getting out in front of and meeting people and putting yourself in that position, then uh, those things, they may happen, but it'll take a lot more time. You know, so all these nice, wonderful things that have been happening to us really a direct result of these of, of these kind of events, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we were fortunate enough to, to go to and fortunate enough not to screw up too badly, you know, <laughs> in front of an audience and, uh, and and get some really positive results out of it. So we're, man, it's, you know, as we, we were talking earlier, it's kind of, it's been a long road, you know, there's been mm -hmm. a lot of ups and downs and stuff like that. So, um I'm I'm grateful for every good thing that happens because you know you know how quickly it can be taken away, so uh, I, I I can thank my lucky stars every day that I get to do what I love and, and that it's going well is is just phenomenal. Yeah, really, really and nice. I, you know from my point of view, I, when I get to interview musicians and I get to interview a lot of different musicians who you know some who've been doing it all their lives, and you think how lucky are you to spend the last fifty years playing the music you love and, mm. and actually eat whatever? Or in your case, I mean. And 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 few other times I've been able to interview people who are obviously things are happening and good things are happening and it's a tough business and you know good things don't always happen but it's great to see good things happening to you especially well, to you someone like you and I you know you've been working hard and it's really nice so my final question to you is what what have you learned from this whole experience don't quit don't ever give up you know. Um, as hard as it may be, as rough as it is at times, you know, it always gets better. If you keep at it, it gets better. You know, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of boxing. I have been my whole life. And, you know, a, a great champion, a true great champion has suffered defeat. You know, none has a, has a clean, has a clean record and mm -hmm. had never been knocked out, you know, and it's, it's how you deal with that knockout and, and get up and keep fighting, you know, that gets you through it. And I just, I'd be dogged determination stubbornness tempered with some you know 
hopefully tempered with some fairly fairly sober uh, planning you know make you know try and make good plans that actually make sense and and uh, but just really keeping it it's and you got to do it because you love it you got to do it because it's the greatest thing in the world to you even though you're not making a dime even though you're, you're nobody knows who you are you have to not care about that you have to love music for making music love music for for what it is because if you got these ulterior goals, well i want to be successful i want to be a star and i want to be this and that okay but you might get disappointed and what are you going to do then if it doesn't work out for you are you going to do something else or are you going to keep making music well i'm going to keep making music because that's what i love to do there's no greater high in my life uh in the world and to communicate with other human beings and enjoy something together like that it's it's the greatest communion there is and it's my religion and i hope that my health holds up long enough that i can do this till the day i die you know, just keep doing it and, and, and retirement. What is that for a musician? You know, what is that? Why would you want to, you know, unless you, you know, maybe slow the schedule down a little bit and, you know. As long as it doesn't kill you. Yeah, yeah. As, you know, as, as long as somebody eventually starts hauling my gear for me. <laughs> I might, uh, might keep showing up to the gigs, you know. But like anything, if my health holds up, why would I stop doing what I love the most to do in the world, you know? So well, that's great to hear. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank I really you, appreciate it. It's my, been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Wonderful. Uh, what did? You, what made you decide to cut your hair? Oh fuck! Was that the interview? <laughs> <laughs> this will be the bonus. It was down in my ass. Oh, was it really that? Yeah, yeah, it was literally.